Welcome to the Catholic Apostolate Center podcast series. This podcast is a presentation that the Center sponsored at the 2019 Mid-Atlantic Congress in Baltimore, entitled, What Now? Vocational Discernment and Accompaniment After the 2018 Synod. To view the slides the presenters reference, please go online to www.catholicapostolatecenter.org. Without further ado, I will let the presenters introduce themselves. Good afternoon. And welcome. I'm Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center. We welcome you to this session, What Now? Vocational Discernment and Accompaniment After the 2018 Synod on Young People, the Faith, and Vocational Discernment. We are very happy to have a, a wonderful panel that was who were in Rome during the time of the Synod, uh, and one who was very much in, in, the, synod, uh, in the Synod Hall as well. They're uh, a terrific group who has, has really spent some uh, significant time not only reflecting on this, uh, this topic, but living it and in their particular ministries and in their particular studies and ways in which they're going about uh, bringing, bringing to life uh, more fully what, has the, what the fruits of the Synod are. Our Catholic Apostolate Center booth is over uh, in the Learning Resource Center. We hope that you'll be able to stop by after this session. Uh, this session is uh, for an, an hour. It won't be an hour of presentation. We'll be doing some, some presentation, but then uh, an opportunity for us to discuss and for us to bring in our own uh, wisdom that's in the room around this topic as well. So I would like the, the panelists to uh, introduce themselves, and we'll start with Sarah Yaklik. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is uh, Sarah, as Father Frank said, and I am recently uh, the Chief Digital Officer for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and most recently um, Director Grotto Network at Notre Dame. Hi, I'm Jonathan Lewis. I work in the Archdiocese of Washington as the Assistant Secretary for Pastoral Ministry and Social Concerns, and I've been there for six years. Uh, I'm Brian Rood. I'm the Project Coordinator at the Catholic Apostolate Center, and I'm a student at the Catholic University of America. So we're going to jump right into things with what was the Synod? So thank you, Father Frank, and it's a privilege to be on the panel with the Apostle Center. Um, so I, as Father Frank mentioned, I had the privilege of being one of the Synod auditors in Rome, and, and my contribution during this time will just be sharing a bit of what that experience was for me. So a bit of short background, what was the Synod? So as you probably know, the Synod structure was established after the Second Vatican Council by St. Paul VI to continue that spirit of collegiality or brotherhood among the bishops. Um, this was the 15th ordinary synod, although there have been some extraordinary ones. For example, the next one next year is on the topic of the Amazon uh, in South America. Um, at the synod, you can see the picture there of the synod hall. That, that was a picture I took sitting in the room from my seat, kind of up in the rafters. And um, you see all the cardinals and bishops. There are about 300 bishops. And uh, what was unique about this particular synod was that it had the largest representation of young people in the history of Synod. So there are about 30 of us from around the world. In fact, I've been getting messages even this morning from our WhatsApp group that continues um, from Uganda and South America and Mexico and Indonesia and Thailand, um, really just showing the diversity of what it means to be a part of a universal church. Um, the Synod, as was explained in our time, has really three phases that everyone is a part of. So while I played a role during those 30 days, each of us plays a role moving forward. So in preparation for the Synod is this preparatory phase that the Holy Father is really emphasized as being an ordinary part of this process. It's not an add-on. Um, so for example, one uh, moment that's been solidified in the synod structure moving forward is a pre-synod gathering. So in March of last year, the Holy Father invited 300 young people from across the world to have sort of a starter meeting to um, discuss this topic together. Then of course there was the in-person discussion phase during the month of October that I was privileged to participate in. But then the Holy Father has been very clear that the synod continues um, after October 28th into this implementation phase. Um, and the goal there, as you can see from Pope Francis's um, document on synods, is to really initiate the reception of the synod to the universal church, to all the people of God, recognizing the giftedness of the people of God requires that every local church take this up in, in their own unique way. It's not possible for any one synod um, to come up with guidelines that will work well in Africa and in Europe and in South America. 
One of the important and key aspects to, to keep in mind, and this was an image that was through the, the Synod preparatory documents, was the road to Emmaus. Now, of course, we know that this is a, an, a, an image that's used for evangelization, it's used in terms of pastoral care, but in this particular context, we're talking about spiritual accompaniment or spiritual mentorship or spiritual companion. You can use a variety of words. But the reality is, is that this walking on the road of people who, yes, who may well be already engaged, the two disciples on the road were already people who were very intimately involved in that community. They were not distant from the community. They knew where the community was, what the gossip of that community was in terms of the, the risen Christ. They knew what was happening. The reality, though, was is that Jesus met them where they were and allowed them through a very open-ended question what sort of things to just simply talk about what was happening. Later there was teaching, later the breaking of the bread, and were not our hearts burning within us and then running back and witnessing to the community. But at first was where they were, what was going on in their lives, and then just simply walking with them. And we don't know really how long he was walking before the teaching began. So much, much like accompaniment, um, vocational discernment was an uh, incredibly important topic to this synod. And I think at times it can kind of um, become a bit of a buzzword. And, and I think that's really sad because of how important, as we all know, I mean, we have religious in this room with us, um, how important discernment is and, and married couples. And so I wanted to look at the synod preparatory document, uh, the final document, and then a bit that happened during the synod. So, the preparatory document speaks very simply about what vocational discernment is. It's a process by which a person makes fundamental choices in dialogue with the Lord, listening to the voice of the Spirit, starting with the choice of one state of life. And I had the opportunity to interview Bishop Cajano from uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut during the Synod um, through the Center, through my work with the Center. And he kind of expanded that and, and reminded us that the Holy Father, Pope Francis, is helping to broaden that concept that we're not just sitting here and focusing on state of life. And that is so important. That is so much of vocational discernment, but also calling us back to the realization, as he said, of our mission as a disciple, of our universal call to holiness that we all share through our baptism. And I think that's so important. And then the final document um, speaks of discernment in a variety of ways, um, but point us back to the fact that they're all interrelated. These aren't separate topics that share a word, but all of, these, all of these ideas of discernment, they're all connected, they're all rooted together. Um, and it, we're reminded through the Synod that vocational discernment requires a well-informed conscience, it requires participation in the sacraments, and an open heart to allow the spirit to move. And that, that is dialogue, but it's also silence and being comfortable with that in uncomfortable times because um, it, it's in silence, it's when we're quiet that, that God whispers to us and we hear him. And I think that's important that we understand all of this as we look ahead. And when we're talking about um, young people and those people we are ministering with and walking with, I think it's really important to understand how is it that, how are we defining young people? And I think there, there is a little bit of a challenge, um, especially when you're talking about a, an international a synod um, where there are different understandings of young people. And so how we here at the panel today and in a ministry with young people in this country, we're looking at young adults, 18 um, to those in their 30s. Um, so for the purpose of our discussion today, that's our um, focus. But I, I think it's important to note that we, we hear all of the statistics that by 2016, only 39% of young people in this country identify as Catholic. And what's more frightening is that of those people who identify as Catholic, only 12% actually attend mass on a daily, on, excuse me, on a weekly basis. But what we, we often fail to look at those, to look at is what happened to create this environment? Young people, they um, experienced 9-11. They were entering the job force during the financial cro the crash. Um, they were it was part of the Iraq war. And what did that mean? The increase of polarization. 
And so when you think about what was happening in secular society and how that, that meets young people today, their experience and their lived reality, it makes sense that the church had a call together to say, how are we going to walk with people? Because maybe it's part of our church's, you know, our response to say, how do we help heal that? So when we were planning on what we were going to say, we thought it was a good, I was in Rome uh, for four months, so I wasn't just there for the synod, I was there as a student with the Catholic University, um, and was kind of able to, to see this, this whole process, kind of the pre-process during the synod, uh, and then after. Um, so I wanted to break down kind of my experience and share a bit of that with you, kind of the before, during, and after. So, you know, you step off the plane, I was lucky enough to go to Rome uh, in, in the spring of last year uh, on pilgrimage. And so m all of my friends had this kind of moment of sheer awe where they looked around, you get off the plane or you're in the Vatican for the first time, or you're in Santa Maria Maggiore uh, or, or wherever you are. Um, and that is, that is part of the beauty of Rome. And I think it kind of plays into the beauty of the Synod that we were there for that in the midst of that beauty as we're talking about these difficult topics that it kind of calls us back to why we're there. It's the beauty of Christ. It's the beauty of our church. Um, I was a church junkie while I was over there. I was walking around all the time, <laughs> popping in and out. Some of my favorite churches. Um, I loved Santa Maria Maggiore. Um, you could go to the Basilica of, of San Clemente where they have, uh, I don't know if they're still there, but they had the relics uh, of uh, St. Cyril Methodius. You know, happy St. Cyril Methodius Day. Um, and you could also see the head of St. Valentine in Santa Maria in Cosmodin. So, you know, just so much beauty there. We're, you know, tying it all in today. Yeah, exactly. Um, this was a picture from uh, one of the uh, papal angelists that I went to uh, with friends. And that was part of the beauty, too. Our campus was only 30 minutes away from the Vatican. So we would just walk up some days. You know, we would go to Mass in the morning and say, hey, what are you doing afterwards? Do you just want to walk over to the Vatican? Do you just want to hear the Pope? Uh, but it was a way of kind of feeling like you're, you're actually there. Instead of just hold, holding yourself up in your residence hall where we lived, we had our own campus, uh, and, and just sticking to the books, you know, we were able to go out and really experience beforehand, which I think made the during, um, at least for me, a bit easier. You know, I was already acquainted with Rome, and it was, I was able to go out um, and really experience the Synod. So one of the first things we did as a group, we actually had probably... 20-ish students um, that went to this event. It was Pope Francis's meeting uh, with young people. Um, and that was such an interesting experience. We had never done something like that. We'd been to the to papal audiences, but this was so different because it was just a bunch of young people and religious that were there. It, Pope Francis didn't talk for very long. It was mostly the participants that were there. Uh, Sarah and our friend Paul Drozdowski were up in the rafters waving and taking pictures. It was. It was a great experience, but um, during during the synod was kind of event heavy. So we we had um, we had this. Uh, I was lucky to be in the synod hall a couple times. Uh, we had the canonization mass, um, which was amazing. I was actually um, with Sarah for for quite a bit of that, um, and we had a group of students that went as well. And it was great to see that despite what's going on in the church, especially being with a group of American students, being on a campus we shared with the Australian Catholic University to see thousands of people show up uh, to gather together as church uh, in the midst of you know, sometimes some, some tumultuous uh, waters. It was really important for all of us. Um, it was interesting because if you were outside of the Vatican, if you were kind of in Rome proper, you might not have known the synod was going on. Uh, you, you know, but in the Vatican, if you know what to look for, you see a lot more pectoral crosses walking around and you know, young people with badges. And, um, but it, it was a lot of great opportunities. That's a picture uh, that was taken at our campus. Uh, that is, uh, we invited uh, the bishops, the US bishops that were in Rome for the synod to come join us on campus for mass and dinner. And we were honored to welcome Cardinal DiNardo and Bishop Cajano to join us. Uh, Jonathan came. Um, we had some other um, pastoral leaders from the US who were in the area that came. And it, it proves a point. We, we were talking about accompaniment and mentorship. and. And making friends, I think, is so important. And you know, I'm sitting with with two people who I consider friends, and in a lot of ways, you know, people who are walking with me on this journey uh, as a young person. And that was such an important part of being there and experiencing that, and kind of seeing the synod in action. And I thought that night was such a great example of really the synod in action. You know, it's not anymore about um, treating young people like they're kids. 
and like they should just sit there and be patted on the head. These were the bishops coming to us. We didn't go to them. We didn't, you know, sit in a, a fancy dining room somewhere at the Knack or somewhere. No, they came to us. They shared with us. They talked with us. They engaged with us. They were actually, you know, they wanted to hear us. And that is, those are the fruits of the synod being borne out in real time. You know, after the synod, that's, uh, I love that picture. I took that picture uh, outside of St. Peter's at night after the, the meeting with Pope Francis. Um, you know, the Vatican settled down, but the real question was, okay, now what? What are we going to do with this? This wasn't just a group of events that happened. This wasn't just, you know, um, your local bishop happened to fly over for this meeting. You know, this is actually something important for us, but what are we going to do now? This has lasting consequences. Yeah, I was lucky to be there with a group of, of about 40 other students, um, and I think the group we had was pretty indicative of of young people in general. We had, you know, some who were very, very involved. I had a friend who sat with uh, Bishop Cajano at that dinner, and uh, man, he heard it. He heard it from her that night of her concerns with the church and wanting to be heard as a young person. Um, and then there were some who just really couldn't have cared less. They might have just come to the dinner for dinner because they knew it was, it was, you know, different food, more food. Um, but, but that's the thing. We can't engage young people as if we're only engaging the ones that are actually engaged right now because we're missing most of them if we do that. Um, so I thought our campus was a, a good example of what the church kind of looks like. Um, through the center, we had some students, uh, some of my classmates who wrote blog posts for us on topics like uh, being a young person in Rome, uh, being a young Catholic, vocational discernment, accompaniment. It was great to hear their voices, and that way it wasn't just a bunch of older people telling us what young people should think. You know, we we're actually hearing from young people, sharing their life experience, sharing, you know, who were their mentors? Did they have mentors? What's their experience with discernment? Things like that. Um, and then really, you know, we had, we had the events too. It was great to get a group of students to go out to kind of um, experience this together because this isn't, as the church is, it's not a, a one-person thing. This isn't singular. This isn't about us wandering out by ourselves kind of aimlessly. This is about going together, like the road to Emmaus, with mentors, with people to accompany us, um, but also as, as friends as people who are helping each other grow in their relationship with Christ and really continuing that together and experiencing a canonization mass, which we might never experience again um, with some amazing saints that were canonized um, or meeting the bishops or going to the meeting with Pope Francis and, and through the events that we loved and through the ones maybe we were a bit disappointed in kind of seeing how this whole process moves and seeing that it's a living thing, like Jonathan was saying. Like it doesn't, it didn't die when after the closing mass we're still going and seeing what that means for us as young people. So when I arrived um, in, in Rome, I, I'll be honest, I was nervous. I was nervous as someone who was in Catholic communications at a time when our church was greatly suffering. And I, star I started my professional work with um, the church in young adult ministry. So it should have been this incredible moment of this, this gift to be, wow, the church is upholding young people. The, the global attention is on young people. But instead, I was full of fear because I was extremely nervous about what this meant for communications worldwide, what this meant for young people, how, much, how was the situation going to affect young people, and I, it was my most fearful professional moment. And I walked into St. Peter's Square and the most beautiful, this is like, this is just, this is an iPhone photo actually, not even on, on a nice camera with zero editing. And the sky was this most amazing blue color. And I sat there and I could see St. Peter holding the keys and Jesus's, you know, th that resurrection moment. And I thought, okay, Lord, the church we have, we exist because you have given us this incredible mission and we just have to trust the continuity of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, I put in the Lord's hands Grotto's communication efforts, but Catholic communication. Um, and what I learned from that was while even Catholic media were, were there, the first press conference I had, I was, I was sad. I was like already asking the tough questions to find that moment. And I thought, we have to do something really um, different with Grotto, and we were not going to tell the news story. And what we did was we focused on the lives of young people. And what we did as we captured video, short, 
one-minute videos, but nothing but testimony, utilizing digital media to give witness to the beauty of the faith spoken by um, and created by young people. And what is fascinating, it absolutely works. So we did a, a number of, probably about 10 videos, all one minute or less, and we put a little bit of paid advertising behind it. Now with paid advertising on YouTube, people could leave after six seconds, right? They could bounce off because they don't want the ad. On every single one of these testimony videos, we had a 98% completion rate. And that was targeted to 18 to 36 year olds because that, that was specifically Grotto's um, mission. And so when you think about that, the power of testimony, the power to utilize digital media for storytelling, but authentic storytelling about what, who Jesus Christ is to young people and how he has, is manifested in the world. And it absolutely works. And so there's a lesson there that we, we could learn from that. And when you think through um, how, especially right now that we're in this moment of division in, in all parts of, um, I think of digital life. Sometimes, even though this is my field of work, sometimes these devices make me go crazy and I wanna like throw it out the window, right? But I know that this tool is something that God has given us right now that we could use to evangelize. But we have to break through all creative bounds in how we use digital media um, and how that we invite young people to be part of that story. I think sometimes we're very afraid to say, how do we equip young people? Um, because maybe if they don't know the full <laughs> truth of the, of the church, they, we might get the message wrong. And that is a valid concern, right? Like we as Catholic communicators or people in parishes or ministries, we, we, we are responsible for be sure, being sure the truth is upheld. But there are systems that you could put in place to empower young people to be part of that. And I think Brian is a really great example. The, the video that we um, shared, we shared, we shared videos of people, young people who were in the Synod Hall, young people like Brian who were studying, um, other young people who were just are, are in Rome to experience the Synod, because we wanted a variety of voices, not just those that were in the Synod Hall. And what happened after Brian shared his, after we shared Brian's video, some people um, were starting to have a conversation with him on Twitter. And I thought that he jumped in, and it was this great moment of dialogue. And it was a, it was a healing dialogue. It wasn't dialogue where people were pointing fingers, but he was ex explaining the idea of what his idea of accompaniment was. And I watched, I just sat back, didn't engage at all except watching. And, and, and then other people started engaging. So as soon as that we empower young people to be storytellers, we empower young people and equip them to help us along the digital highways, beautiful things happen for the Lord. And we take these devices that are sometimes, um, could be narcissistic, right? How many people take pictures of their food? <laughs> or you know the selfie generation, right? Maybe there is something behind that selfie generation, maybe, that young person is actually trying to say, like, I'm trying to be known. And so, and what could we learn, right? Like, we could even learn not inviting young people to um, join us on digital media, but if we learn how they're using technology and devices, we have the answer as to how we then minister with young people. And so we really have to, to, think, um, to think through that. And Pope Francis, even um, just at World Youth Day um, a couple weeks ago, he, he said to young people, you are the God of now, right? And so how are we? Can you imagine how bold our church would be and our outreach if we were not afraid to really empower and equip young people to be the evangelizers? And that I think is, if that's you know, one of my greatest takeaways is that we not only invited young people to be in that synod hall, but we're inviting young people to evangelize. And the more and more I think that we're able to do that, we're going to raise up saints. You know, I, I was that canonization of mass, um, looking like taking photos and we were creating some video and I thought, wow, we're, we're canonized, we're upholding these holy men and women that we want to, to be like and that we could go ask their intercession. How many saints are being created right now? And what are we doing as church to create more saints? Um, together. So I just, I'm just a firm believer that digital media is not the answer, but most certainly is a tool. 
and, and the way we use digital media and the way we make it <coughs> inclusive and if we caption our videos so that all people, regardless of ability, can engage with content, then we're doing something beautiful for the Lord. But that requires us to take active steps. It requires us to say, before I put a video on social media, I'm going to send that out for captioning to be sure that all young people, regardless of their ability, are going to access this content. And so it requires us to take certain steps, but I think there are steps that are really beautiful for the Lord. And he'll transform those platforms into something that is healing. And I think young people possibly are the ones that can, can bridge us, right? But we just have to create those pathways and use digital media in a way to, to heal what is broken, to heal the division, um, and to unite us closer to Jesus. That is from an article on Grotto's website about the canonization mass. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Sarah. <clears throat> so I'd like to share sort of some summary thoughts about my experience personally being in Rome as uh, auditor for the Synod, um, building on some of the things that Sarah talked about and Brian about his personal experience throughout that month and those months in Rome. Um, Everyone at the Synod, bishop and lay people, get one four-minute talk. So you have to really kind of choose your words wisely because as some bishops and cardinals found out, they will cut your microphone after four minutes, which is kind of nice to see even, even they have to play by the rules. Um, so I'm just going to share some of those thoughts from my intervention. And the beginning of it began with sort of a, what I hoped was a provocative question to all the bishops in the room. I said, um, dear Synod Fathers, I'd like to ask you a question. How many young people do you know by name? And I really sat with that question. I was happy to see that later on um, that week, one of the bishops in the room um, raised up at, in his remarks that same question. So it obviously resonated a bit um, in terms of the focus on being known, which Sarah touched on, uh, that is such a desire for young people. And part of that uh, idea that really resonated with me was taken from a presentation I was at a number of years ago um, with St. Mary's Press, uh, the presentation Going, Going, Gone, which is a wonderful study of young people, especially teenage young people, um, more than uh, one's 20s and 30s, but certainly that builds from that. And there was a wonderful sociologist there who talked about this principle of relational authority. That's really the number one thing that stuck with me from that presentation. Um, and the thesis is quite simple, and Sarah set it up really nicely, which is if you, if you really reflect upon the experiences of young people, uh, millennial generation, Institutions have constantly let us down. Um, banks have let us down. Pa parental units with the divorce rates have let us down. Um, the financial crisis has let us down. I mean, the, pr the presidency and politics and divisiveness has let us down. People don't trust institutions anymore, but we don't, we don't give up meaning in those areas of life. What we do instead, young people have really invented ways of creating what, what sociologists call relational authority instead of institutional authority. So some simple examples. Instead of just going to cash my check on Saturday morning like my dad or grandpa did 30, 40 years ago, young people now get out their phone and Venmo someone 10 bucks for dinner, right? So we've taken banking and financial contributions and made it go through relationships. Instead of just going to the supermarket, we go to farmer's markets. Instead of shopping for everything at, the, at a physical store, we'll go online at Amazon or we'll go on Etsy where we can see the picture of the person who made that item for us. You see how we've taken traditional meaning of institutional life and we've re-navigated it through relational life. This echoes completely what Pope St. John, uh, excuse me, what Pope St. Paul VI said um, in his document on evangelization, that modern man still listens more, uh, more willingly to witnesses than teachers, and if it does listen to teachers, it's because they're witnesses. I, I translate that with that principle to say, um, contemporary young people um, trust relationships more than institutions, and they'll trust an institution only if they first have a relationship. It's the same idea, we just see a contemporary expression of that. And so, uh, back in that last slide, the first task, I think, is for us to offer to young people an encounter with Jesus Christ through the witness of each baptized Christian. Um, we don't need a hundred people like Bishop Barron having YouTube presences. There's a great witness and joy uh, in that digital apologetic tool. But what we need are people really proximate and close by. That was the experience of, of, Brian, of Brian's in Rome, getting to know those bishops, traveling alongside other college students. That's the hunger of young people in the digital space, wanting to connect in person. And so I, in my synod intervention, I shared three stories uh, of young people in my life in this next slide um, of, of reasons why this mentorship is so key. I, I sort of reflecting upon what I wanted to say to, to the Pope and these bishops, um, I shared people in my life and said, you know, some young people leave the church because they don't trust the church. 
So what's the answer? What's the fix? Well, it's mentors. It's close by people who don't scandalize the church with sin, like that happens far too often, but who scandalize the world with holiness, a radical joy of the gospel. I have other friends who've left the church because they have really serious questions that have never been answered about meaning, about faith, and about life. What's the, what's the fix? Close by mentors who listen like, the, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus to those questions, who provide answers that are serious, that offer coherent view, but they're customized that person's interest and stage of life. And finally, I have friends who've left the church because they just feel like the church is irrelevant. They don't hate the church. They just stop caring about the church. I think that's more often than not the reality. And so the church seems to have stopped speaking to their interests and experiences. Again, what's the fix? What's the response for the church? It's to find mentors who befriend those people and like St. Paul in the Areopagus, enculturate the gospel into the locus of their lived experience of faith. You can't do that 5,000 miles away. You have to walk alongside people and to say, oh, you like going to the gym. It's really important that we actually do take care of our bodies because we're created and our bodies are really good and beautiful. You see how we, how we can find things that people love and care for and find how those are deeply rooted in a Christian worldview, but it takes walking with someone, not being um, 5,000 miles away. And so what we see is that mentorship is really the method of Jesus Christ. When we, when we sort of break down the gospel message, what did, what did the man do? He, he called people by name. He got to know them by name. He said, come and walk with me. Mentorship was this method of Jesus. Um, it was also the method of the saints. You see here this image of, of Claire and Francis. When we think back through so many different holy men and women, we see that saints make more saints. This, in every generation, Christ raises up those people. Look at Paul and Timothy, Ignatius and Francis Xavier, Louis and Zelie with their daughter Therese. Whether it's in the family or friendship context, holy people make holy people. That's just the way, that's the way Jesus set it up. And so that, that still is true today. Missionary formation today doesn't happen through a digital platform. It doesn't happen through a textbook. Sorry to the publishers at the conference. It's a long-term apprenticeship in Christian living that nothing can replace. And so the question, I think, for our ordinary pastoral ministry in our parishes, our schools, is how do we cultivate these thick relationships of friendship that Brian mentioned, these relationships of mentorship? And so I asked the bishops in my sort of closing remarks in this four minutes, I've been longer today than I was in the Senate Hall, um, you know, we, we often talk about time, talent, and treasure in our churches. So I think our churches have to do that same examination of conscience. Um, how, many, how much time do clergy and ladies spend mentoring young people? If you spend more time in meetings than mentoring, we've got a problem that's not going to fix the lack of young people engaging our church. Do our sacramental preparation programs, whether we talk about for second graders, for eighth graders, or for 20-somethings getting married, do they provide long-term spiritual mentorship? We've seen it's not, it's not sufficient to walk people up to the, the, the ledge of a sacrament. We have to accompany them through the sacramental experience. I just had my uh, first child uh, 11 days ago. Um, and so thank you very much. I'm just here for the hour before I can go relieve my wife. Um, but I'll tell you, we're not in baptism preparation yet, right? This is the time where we need that support. I'm, we're just two years married. Bap marriage prep ended years ago for us. What about a parish that would have invested in us, not up to our sacrament of matrimony, but through that experience into the, the real lived experience and questions of marital life, of young family life? That's what an implementation of Amoris Laetitia looks like. It's this long-term accompaniment in Christian living. Um, and so I think we have to invest financially to have people who can help do this. It's not, it's not locus, finding a locus of one person. We don't need one youth minister in a parish. That model doesn't work. One person can accompany hundreds but it's, it's finding people who can coach and train hundreds of people at each of our parishes to walk along the young people that are in their lives in the parish, but more importantly, outside the parish, in the peripheries of their workplace, their neighborhoods, and their daily life. And so uh, the famous quote of St. Oscar Romero who said, you say you love the poor, name them. I conclude with the bishop saying, you say you love young people, name them. And so as Father Frank talked about, what are some practical tips here? It's the road to Emmaus story. It's really breaking in through theological reflection, all that Jesus did in that experience of walking with the disciples. And so a couple of tips in my mind, it means to start close, not far. Who are the young people you already know by name? Who has God already pl placed in your life? And to really pray and discern, maybe those people who are junior partners in a law firm, who work with us, who live in our neighborhood, who move back home from college or home for the summer, maybe those are the people to start with. Uh, it's to think long about mentorship, not short. The spiritual life is nonlinear, and people who propose it as this quick fix, it doesn't work. You can't teach a couple evangelization tools and call it done with. It's long-term walking with people through the ebbs and flows of life and faith. 
And mentorship is about going deep, not wide. It starts with us to make sure, as St. Paul says, that we have a reason for the conviction of faith in our own lives, that we can share that charismatic proclamation. Um, we should also expect to learn and to grow. As Brian shared, um, mentorship is something that, that asks something of both mentor and apprentice. It's a two-way dialogue. It's not one person teaching a, a young person who knows nothing. We recognize that by virtue of our baptism, each of us are called and gifted, and we have to raise up that giftedness in each person um, and to really follow their lead. It's not something that we can do, have one youth minister to mentor 100. That wide type of mentorship we've seen doesn't work. It's one-on-one, -on -one, it's small group-based, it's forming small communities, mirroring family life. And so I think in our parishes and our daily personal postulates, each of us are able to implement this in some small way. So the Synod final document had uh, that spiritual accompaniment is intended to help people integrate step-by-step step the various dimensions of their lives so as to follow the Lord Jesus. Unfortunately, the word accompany has kind of been kicked to the curb on, on a number of instances because, oh, it just means meandering about. That's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean meandering about at all. Notice what this Synod final document, which act actually is echoed in Pope Francis' Evangelii Gaudium, this is very much a focus on Christ and in entering into the life of faith in and through the church as well. So I, I think we have to be, be careful about those who, who might want to just say, oh, you know, kick this to the side. It's not worth our considering. Instead, it really, we're, we're entering into, uh, into this form of, of mentoring. Now, we're currently working on a Catholic Apostolate Center, a document that's not just simply a document, but it is a, really a short piece that will give a scripture and tradition and, and also some practical dimensions around spiritual accompaniment, spiritual mentorship, and hopefully by uh, into the summertime that will be completed. It's being worked on by two young adults primarily, but we'll have a lot of consultation <laughs> around it. Uh, that's <coughs> Colleen Campbell and Tom Karani, who are, are in one of the things, the pieces that they've uh, come come to are, are aspects of mentoring. So they're spiritual mentoring, for example, which is about integrating the content of faith with personal life, experiences so that a person is able to grow closer to the heart of Christ. Notice again that we're, this is very Christocentric. Catechetical mentoring, which a number of people here are, are, are engaged in, in catechesis. Catechetical mentoring includes training another in the doctrine of the faith, as in the RCIA formation or many other uh, teaching moments. And then there's social mentoring. It's rooted in the church's social doctrine and is a relationship in which one learns more about his or her responsibility towards a multi-religious and pluralistic society. These different types of, of mentoring, along with witnessing, which Jonathan has, has talked eloquently about, spiritual friendship, which he also mentioned, which I, we can find numerous examples of people uh, growing in, in holiness and growing in the life of faith as a result of these friendships that are intentional friendship. And how many of a young adult that I, in the work that I've done, the ministry over these many years I've done with young adults, will tell me that, and I see it, because they're making an intentional choice to live faith, it's not just simply coming out of Catholic culture, but living an intentional choice, they have to find people to be together with. There needs to be friends who are now become family because that's faith family because blood family is not there. And often they're the ones going back and evangelizing blood family and sometimes that's really challenging. So the art of accompaniment uh, is, and this is coming, lifting out of also Evangelii Gaudium, uh, the joy of the gospel of Pope Francis, includes patient listening. So it requires that respectful and compassionate listening that is, is one that's not just simply, oh, you know, I'm going to look down at you person, but instead I'm walking with you, we're walking together. A fearless healing, and that, that sometimes includes also moments of not only acceptance, but moments of, as the Synod final document talks about, fraternal correction. There may be moments in which, in, in which we might be, be calling one another out, if you will. 
an opportunity to say, hey, where, where are you with that? Not in a, in a crushing way, but I think sometimes, again, accompaniment sometimes equals just simply accepting. It's not a matter of just simply accepting. It's a matter of how are we walking together again on this journey to Christ. And then spirit-filled evangelizing, because otherwise it becomes a narcissistic moment in which it's just all about me, myself, and my self-actualization. Wonderful, lovely, but it means going out. Going out and taking, the, as the person of faith and prayer, who recognizes one's weakness and failures, the final document says, then going out. Going out into a world that needs to hear the message. Now, it may be going out to the one other person and walking with that other person. So the, the final document of the Synod also talks about accompanier traits. So it says in 102, a good accompanier is a person who is balanced, a listener, a person of faith and prayer, who has a measure of his or her own weaknesses and frailties. And so that person knows how to be accepting of young people without moralizing, but also without false indulgence. When necessary, person also knows how to offer a word of fraternal correction. I would invite you also to look at the section on mentorship, spiritual mentorship, that's in the pre-Synod document that was written by young adults. If you look at these two pieces together, it gives a, a really rich view of of accompaniment and what it could look like today. So we'd like to uh, open up the, uh, an opportunity for discussion, for questions, and uh, we have about 20 minutes to do that. So we'd like to, to just give, give that opportunity right now. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I think it's one of the key frustrations of pastoral leaders in the last decades is that a model of ministry we keep looking toward is one we keep being sort of turned away from. I mean, I'm old enough that my youth minister and I would, would regularly pick me up and we'd jump in a car and go do activities and it was all very professional and, um, and that helped me to grow. That was the way that mentorship lo looked back then that is no longer possible for us. Um, you know, I've, I think a spiritual direction model where there's some focused time within a, a controlled environment one-on-one, -on -one. but also I think this is where small groups really take on a, light, uh, a really positive light that um, groupings of people or in different, for different cultural communities, as you know well, in Waldorf, um, having families do things with families or siblings with siblings um, can create a bit of a multi-generational environment, but I'm a big proponent of small group ministry as well. Any other questions, comments, discussion? At least in the back. Yes. Thinking through in the young adult environment, uh, the long term and the challenges of granting mm -hmm. uh, of having to often leave whatever the next community approaches or business struggles or whatever goes on. How how do you see that being fleshed out almost from community to community through either some sort of reciprocity, moving from one location to another location? I, I, do you, I, I, I think technology helps. The, the way that, the way that uh, you know, it was mentioned about Brian, the, uh, so hopefully you won't get it. 
the way that a mentorship has continued on from their, their time in Rome has been primarily through digital means, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and connecting with one another and continuing with one another. There's uh, three or four people, well actually four, three or four people from that time uh, who you know Brian got to know and, and I've seen on Twitter and I've, you know, publicly and I'm sure there are private conversations and everything else. But I use that as an example, and I know f I see it for myself, I'm sure that you all can speak to the same thing. That's one way in which, in a transient society, where the digital realm can be very helpful to continue on. I also know a number of people who carry forward spiritual direction via FaceTime or Skype or some other, other means. That's becoming more and more common and less, you know, less strange, so that that interconnection through the through digital means does continue even and then when people are are together, you know IRL in you know in real life, um, you know it, there, there's a, there's a moment where it's it's a, it's a great moment of joy, where they see one another and encounter one another. Yeah, if, if I could, I, and then uh, Sarah and then Father and then Caitlin. Yeah, just to, to to go off of that, one of my favorite lines is Jesus didn't call us into relationship with these devices. He calls us into the sacramental life, right, to in, in personally encounter him. However, young people today, they can't get inside the church. They can't find a mentor if they don't even know how, right? This is, these are the tools that young people use. As Jonathan said, you, you pay, I paid my rent on my phone, right? I haven't written a check in I don't know how long, right? <laughs> you know, so we use these devices. However, there are so many times where it's not that the church hasn't even caught up with us, it's that we're sometimes not even present here. I was, in, I was looking for a parish in New York to schedule an event, um, and it took me 15 minutes to try and figure out where a mass, potential mass time for young adult could be. And I thought, and I, was, I stayed on with it, right? I stayed because I was like, I'm gonna find this. Talk about the young people who are desperately searching and looking, guess what? they're never gonna experience the gift of a mentor, the gift of the Eucharist, if we can't even help them walk in the door. And so that's how serious of, it, of a need, I think, for our church to say, let's use these as, as a bridge and, and the tool that we could then have um, an in-person um, encounter. But I think you've hit on the key question and challenge. I mean, organizations like Newman Connection and the College Space or Focus are asking some of these questions of how do we transition people into parish life? And that's one of the biggest challenges. And, and why is it a big challenge? Not because you don't have the right program, but, but the reality is young people show up to churches and say, hey, I was involved in a Bible study. What can I do? And what do they hear? We don't do that here. Go somewhere else. And so we worked with the Apostle Center to develop a program called From Practicing Catholics to Apostles on Mission, because in one case, we have to elongate digitally, perhaps, mentorship, so that in that time, we can help that young person stand up on their own two feet in that new space and be willing to, to go from one parish or to another, or to one adult that you might get pawned off to another person in the parish, to find that right space to actually connect. And it just takes a longer term than we tend to give credit for. But the answer always is more mentors to be, to be able to have those conversations wherever that young person is. Was there something else on this particular point? Uh, if not, then we'll, Kately? Yeah, and I think that point from Jonathan was exactly where I was going for. Um, as we're empowering young into empowerment, and I know that empowerment as an adult is the topic of so many movements in the church right now, but I see as we're empowering young people to enter into church leadership, for example, or to enter into more active roles in the parish, how do we see mentorship play there? You know, in, And then Father, um, yeah. Because I think I was along the same way. Very much appreciate all of everything that you've been uh, putting forth here. Um, when you were sharing about the, uh, the grotto, the, the one minute mm -hmm. uh, video interviews and that uh, the, the youth have been empowered and that they are our evangelizers, I got real nervous. Okay. I got real nervous. Mm -hmm. I have high school, Catholic high school. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that some kids feel comfortable in front of a camera, sure. maybe some of them talk about their faith, but they don't have the language, they don't have mm -hmm. the tools, they don't mm -hmm. have the background. I, I, I guess I get nervous, sure. and that's where the, maybe the question of the mentoring, mm -hmm. um, that sounds great, you know, children are our future, you know, I get sure. all that, 
Um, but then how, um, yeah. how do we make sure that these who either put themselves up as leaders or speakers or um, that they're not leading? Um, well, I, I think we have to be careful, too, in, in that our topic is 18 and above. The, the focus of this has been primarily people who are young adults, uh, and I, I can safely speak about this in, in terms of the mentorship piece because the organization that I direct has entirely a, a staff of entirely young adults in, in very, who are also in various countries, who run the ages from uh, interns who are 19 years old, 18, 19 years old, to people who are in their 30s. And so what does it require? It then requires then presence. But that, again, the presence is, is a, we have to be very careful. This is, you know, Sarah, uh, and I'm sure you could speak about this, about the videos, you vetted who you were going to be, yeah. you know, want to talk yeah, a little and, bit about Yeah, and so there's a, there's a process, and I understand that fear, right? I mean, even think about when we create a parish bulletin. It's the best example. If someone submits something to the parish bulletin, it doesn't automatically mean it's going to appear there, right? There's a process in place that we could establish to make sure that the voice of the pastor, the voice of the parish is protected, and therefore the truth is upheld. So the same thing could happen with digital media. But I think we get so afraid because it is, it does, it can feel like the wild, wild west. But we did, we, we walked with the young people. Talk about accompaniment. We sat with them. We had coffee to get, we'd share cappuccinos, right? We, we actually had lunch together first before Brian even did the first video. And we built this relationship. And then we were helping each other out through Rome. Did you get your credentials, right? Like going back and forth in the day-to-day -day practical elements and moments of life. And in that, I heard about his, his, his conversion story. And I thought, that's the part, that's the story I want to tell. And so Brian's story that he shared was about what does accompaniment mean and how a teacher in high school inspired him to um, re-engage with the faith. So there's a, there, there are ways that we can um, protect our message, if, you, if we want to use that. Like, like again, we have, we have the responsibility, the great gift of, of upholding the truth. But there are ways that you could talk and, and, and work. And if someone says something that's not true, guess what? It doesn't have to make it into the video. <laughs> that, that's the reality, right? And so um, it, it's all about, it's about the process. And I, I think, too, um, leadership is cultivated. So you, we can look at, and, and this, this can, is good for high school, but it also works its way up, this, this young adult age range that you know, we, can, we can pick out individuals within communities, uh, schools, parishes, who we look at and say, you know, this person's already a leader in some regards. Let's, let's see where this goes. But that's cultivated. And that's where the mentorship com you know, point comes in. You know, I, I'm not sitting here as a young person because father just you know, picked a name out of a hat and threw me up here. Like, if, if I wasn't trusted to, to you know, sit up here and to speak with some sort of clarity knowing that I wasn't going to you know, make a fool of myself, and especially <laughs> not the center, and, and what w the synod was, you know, I wouldn't be here. And that takes time. And that's been a process of, of relationship, of mentorship, of accompaniment. So I think, you know, I think when <laughs> we have a, a, a habit of seeing young people and going, oh, you're a leader, and just kind of grabbing them and throwing them into a role maybe they're not ready for, because they seem so few and far between. But the goal is to pick the leaders and to walk with them and accompany them and mentor them so that when they are in front of the camera or when they are in front of the small group and maybe you're not around, you have the trust in them. So the trust is built, the leadership is cultivated, and it's a process that can't just be a, a quick moment. And, and also learning from failure mm -hmm. when things do fail. Uh, you know, the, it worked for the apostles. <laughs> uh, in the back, yes, prior. I think that there's a difference between witnessing to the faith and a theological um, explanation of the Catholic Church. My impression is we're not talking about a theological explanation of the Catholic Church. That easily can be taken care of. I would assume that those 30-second videos of people sharing their faith stories in Jesus Christ and how they came to be a faithful Catholic, say. So someone doing that is quite different than, um, I was thinking what Father said, like the, the one in charge of the Catholic school. That's two different things, I thought. I'm just wondering, if you're sharing your faith, that's different than um, 
There's, there, uh, and and I think to it. Yes. I want to share my faith story, and that's right. what people want to hear. The witness. That's that's what I'm thinking. You mean by witness? I might be off, but that's what yeah. I would think. Someone is attracted to how they came to know Jesus Christ. Yes, and. There's nothing more doctrinal than the kerygma of Jesus Christ. And the kerygma in one's faith story is not separated from the charismatic proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so we, can't, we don't want to privatize that person's experience by saying, well, that's not doctrinal. That's just your experience, because that's not the Catholic worldview, right? Uh, so I would say uh, it's a both and in a good, in good Catholic way. Um, but I would say, too, to not forget in all this, the enculturation of the gospel. It, it's my belief that we as a church have completely forgotten how to enculturate the gospel. We, we think we have to go back to 17th or 18th century articulations of doctrine in order to, to articulate it appropriately, but we've, and we're wondering why it's not resonating with contemporary culture. Um, I mean, if there's any danger of a doctrine being misunderstood, go to any parish on Trinity Sunday and, let's, and, and hear how many you know, doctrinal fallacies we hear. I, it's always a risk, right? Because faith, the gospel's a risk. But I am very convicted in that uh, with exactly what Brian said, which was so well articulated, no one knows best how to evangelize young people than young people. And so I think we have to give young people the chance to enculturate the gospel in new language um, that maybe an older generation wouldn't be as familiar with. But let's be honest, older folks 50 years ago were articulating the gospel in ways that their parents probably weren't very pleased with either, right? And so I think we have to always be open to a gospel that's ever ancient, but also ever new. Okay. A brother and then... And I think that's a really important point, too. It's, it, young people are not, like you said, afraid to share. Um, the fact that they turn to social media, I think, is an, an interesting point and one that we need to recognize. They're looking for an outlet. And part of that reason why young people, even when they share their faith, kind of unsolicited on Facebook or Twitter, maybe that means that because they don't have an outlet within their parish or their school. So, you know, when we have young people who come up to a pastor or a young adult minister or a youth minister and say, I want to be a part of this ministry of the church, they can't be stared down by the old people who are used to doing it for 20 years and pushed away. That might be their outlet to share their faith. You know, how often do we see young people, even 25, 26-year-olds, ushering at our parish? It might be a little more, we might, we might see it more in Eucharistic ministers or in lectors. But allowing people an open space to share their faith cannot just be resigned to social media and behind closed door conversations with family or friends. You know, the parish is a family, it's a community, and so we need to be cultivating those conversations outside of those agencies, even though they're great for that and they're great for evangelization on a certain level, you know, but where are we, why is that there to that extent? Well, maybe it's because there's no outlet for them in the places where there really should be. And sometimes they're not even outlets in digital media. So there's this term called dark social sharing, and that means one-on-one -on -one sharing. Okay, so that means I might take a piece of an article or a video and privately text it or privately email it instead of putting it publicly on my Facebook page or Twitter handle. And we're seeing that I, in, in Grotto, I, I watched the numbers. I said, how did these views get so high when I don't see the shares? So it wasn't adding up. So I went back in the analytics 
And then I saw it was copy and pasting the YouTube, YouTube link. And I thought, wow, this is exactly what a focus group said. Someone said, I love that video, but I have to be really careful about what I share online. And so we don't even maybe even have spaces digitally where people feel comfortable. And so it's, it really is, it's, a, it's an accompaniment here, it's accompaniment in person. So thank you all for, for joining us and thank you to our wonderful panel. Thank you.